Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today, we begin the first parak of Malachim Bet, which opens with a fact that seems kind of unimportant, and that is that Moab rebelled against Israel, against the control that Israel had asserted over it and the entire region following the death of King Ahav. And while the parak does not deal with the implications of that rebellion, narrowly speaking, it's nonetheless a very important detail because it alerts us to the fact that following Ahav's death, the international reach, the strength of the northern kingdom, is waning. We're told that King Ahaz Yahu, who succeeds Ahav, is also in a precarious personal situation. He has taken a bad fall, and now he's taken ill, and he is in bed. As a result, he sends a messenger to seek divine guidance for how he can recover. But he sends his messenger not to a prophet of Israel, not to seek the word of God with a capital G, but to seek the guidance of Baal Zevuv, the god, lowercase g, of Ekron, the deity associated with this city uh, of Ekron, which is one of the major Plishti cities. Baal Zevuv, parenthetically, translates to Lord of the Flies, as is familiar to us by the famous William Golding novel, It also may be a deliberate misrepresentation and mockery of the true name of the deity, which may have been Baal Zevul, which means Baal the prince. So it's this kind of interesting built-in misrepresentation of the name being called Baal Zevul instead of Baal the prince, but now it's Lord of the Flies. It's an interesting little background to to this name, which, again, is most most well known to us from that, that novel, which we likely all read in high school. In any event, Ahaziahu here displays particularly terrible behavior. In the past, kings have led the nation astray. Kings have been terrible, but when the chips were down, when they were truly desperate, they knew to turn to Hashem. Recall that when Yeravam's son takes ill, he sends his wife to seek out a navi of Hashem, to seek the word of God, the capital G. Now, Ahaziah has reached such a terrible low that even in his moment of desperation, he only thinks to send a messenger to a pagan deity. So it's, it's really a, uh, a terrible depth to which the nation has sunk, to which Ahaziahu has sunk. Rabbi Alex Israel also notes in his work on Malachim Bet, I've been discussing, I've been noting his work on Malachim Aleph uh, quite a bit, referencing it quite a bit, uh, published by Magid. He has also an excellent work on Malachim Bet, which I will continue to use uh, with uh, its, just its wealth of material. Uh, so he notes that the fact that Ahaziahu is sending a messenger to seek out a pagan deity, it's not just a reversal of the behavior of, let's say, Yeravam, but it's a reversal of the broader vision expressed by Shlomo and the Beis HaMikdash, where uh, the, the hope was that nations of the world would come to B'nai Yisrael to seek God. That was the vision, and in fact, that became the reality. During the, the golden years of Shlomo's reign, when, when things were going in the right direction, we saw nations of the world coming to us, coming to the Beis HaMikdash to seek God. That was the, the very greatest expression of a Kiddush Hashem, now Ahaziah has gone in the complete opposite direction, and in his moment of need, he is seeking divine guidance from elsewhere. He is outsourcing. He is looking elsewhere beyond our borders to find uh, divine guidance and inspiration. And so it's really this tremendous Chil Hashem. And as such, there is a need for an intervention. And that intervention comes by way of Eliyahu Hanavi. I know you're thinking, wait, I thought Eliyahu Hanavi was already out of the picture. Didn't he find Elisha as his replacement? Shouldn't, shouldn't kind of we be on to the next prophet? In fact, that's not the case. Eliyahu continues to pop up for a little bit. And here Eliyahu is addressed by an angel, by a messenger of God, who tells him to go and intercept the messengers that were sent by Ahaziahu and to give them a message to tell the king. And the, the message is, Hamibli, 
Ein Elokim Beisrael, Atem Holchim Lidrosh Bebal Zavuv Elo Hey Ekron. Is it because there's there's no God in Israel that you have to go and inquire from Baal Zavuv, the God of Ekron? Therefore, tell the king that he will never arise from his bed, which is to say he's never going to recover and he will die from this illness. The messengers go back to the king with this message. And the king asks, who delivered you this message? And amazingly, the men cannot identify the person, but they are able to describe him. And they say he's a very hairy individual who is wearing a leather belt. More remarkable still, Ahaziahu knows exactly who they are talking about. They say this is, of course, he says rather, this is, of course, Eliyahu Hatishbi. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what are we supposed to understand uh, from this exchange? Why is this description of Eliyahu helpful or or necessary in any way? The only thing that I can kind of do with it is the fact that this description, uh, in, in the kind of biblical image of a man, uh, the idea of uh, having long hair is often associated with antisocial and also kind of holy behavior that we associate with a Nazir. And so that kind of fits with Eliyahu's reclusive and, of course, extremely holy and lofty persona. So it's interesting that additional insight, what, what to make of the leather belt, I'm not sure. In any event, Ahaziah does not repent upon hearing these words. He is not King Ahav, who, when he's confronted, can just pull a 180. No, he instead, he sends an officer with 50 men to go and bring Eliyahu to him, to bring him to the king. Those 50 men and the officer ascend to Eliyahu, who is planted on top of a mountain, and Eliyahu refuses to go with them. Instead, a fire descends from on high and consumes the officer and his 50 men. He kills uh, these 51 men. The moment, of course, is uh, very much evocative. It has a lot of the elements of the Har HaKarmel showdown, in which Eliyahu Hanavi confronts the Nevi'i Habal, as well as Ahav. Um, we have Eliyahu on top of a mountain, which is uh, reminiscent of that moment, as well as, of course, the fire coming down from on high. The king is undeterred uh, by this response, by this miraculous defeat. So he sends another 50 men led by an officer. They too are consumed by a heavenly fire. Once again, the king sends yet a third unit, but this time the officer in charge bows, prostrates himself before Eliyahu Hanavi, and he pleads with him to consider his life and the lives of his men, which makes us, and apparently, or potentially Eliyahu Hanavi, uh, much more sympathetic to him. And uh, exactly how Eliyahu felt, I'm not sure, but a messenger from Hashem intervenes and t- tells Eliyahu that he should not fear and he should, in fact, go with these men to go and speak with the king. Now, if we pause right here, we could ask, well, uh, why did Eliyahu choose to go at this point, wh- whereas in the past he killed the messengers of the king? And are, are we meant to understand that when Eliyahu killed the previous units, that that was the wrong thing to do? Um, it, it's kind of hard. The text doesn't give us so much to go on in terms of assessing Eliyahu's behavior and why the change. But I think, especially if we draw on the parallel to Har HaKarmel, uh, I think we can understand that Eliyahu's previous refusals uh, and, and the, the miracles that he displayed were meant to, to prove a point. They were meant to show the nation the ultimate power of Hashem, and were meant to be this kind of corrective, just like Har HaKarmel was a corrective for the nation to have clarity and to see that Hashem is the true God, uh, so too, in this moment, the, the killing of the unit was not just there, uh, this miraculous fire coming down, wasn't there just to kill these, these men, these units of men, they were there to prove a point to presumably onlookers, other people who would see this and recognize the truth of Hashem. Uh, and perhaps, that's uh, 
we see the success of the previous two miracles when the third unit, led by this officer, prostrates himself before Eliyahu. It's not just telling us that there happened to be one good officer who uh, was, was, saw that Eliyahu was this powerful figure representing God and, and, and he understood that he needed to prostrate himself. I think he's supposed to be a kind of uh, indicator of a broader in, impact that these previous two miracles had on the nation, meaning his prostrating himself before Hashem, before El- Eliyahu, uh, indicates to us that Eliyahu's previous two miracles in killing the previous two units with this miraculous fire, they worked. They made an impression. And because of that, now Eliyahu can go to the king. Now the necessary uh, display of power and the necessary kind of, let's say, Kiddush Hashem was accomplished. And now Eliyahu can go to the king, which he does. Eliyahu arrives at the king and he delivers the exact same message. He says, uh, again, or there. You know, he chastises the king. He says, there's no God of Israel that you have to go to Baal-Zavuv. And he assures the king that he's going to die, which he promptly does. He is succeeded following a pathetic two-year reign by his brother, Yehoram. Not to be confused, by the way, with Yehoram, the son of Yehoshaphat, who is currently or concurrently ruling in the south. Um, two different people. So that's, that's another one to keep track of. I know it's very hard to keep track of the kings of the north and the south. This makes it even more difficult. We have two Yehorams. In any event, just kind of the broad picture, I think, of this Perek is that it, it's, it's in a certain respect a kind of Har HaKarmel redo, but it's a Har HaKarmel with much less pomp and circumstance and seemingly much more of a limited impact. That's it for today. Chazak ve'ematz and happy learning.